This morning, I would like to invite us to hold two different stories in our hearts. The first is a cautionary tale from the past, the second a hopeful story of a different possible future. I chose these two particular stories for this Sunday because today is in close proximity to two important dates. show you a slide related. Tomorrow, as we, for those of you who were here for our pre-service, um, the five-minute video, uh, tomorrow is the 50th anniversary of the Kent State Massacre on May 4th, 1970. And this past Friday was May 1st, known as International Workers' Day or May Day, an annual celebration of the working classes that dates back more than 130 years to the late 19th century. It's, by the way, quite telling that we here in the United States currently celebrate Labor Day in September on a date idiosyncratic to our own country instead of on May 1st in solidarity with the international labor movement. It matters which stories we choose to tell and when we choose to tell them. Let's start with a difficult story from the past again before shifting to a more hopeful story of our future. This first story happened 50 years ago tomorrow on May 4th, 1970 on the campus of Kent State University in Ohio. Over the course of 13 terrible seconds, 28 members of the Ohio National Guard fired 61 bullets at a group of unarmed college students who were protesting President Nixon's decision to expand the Vietnam War by invading Cambodia. Four students were killed, nine wounded, one of whom was permanently paralyzed. There is a lot to say about all that happened before, during, and after the Kent State shooting. If you're interested in learning more, I recommend the book by historian Thomas Grace titled Kent State, Death and Descent in the Long 60s. For now, I'll let the words of the Scranton Commission, who was tasked with investigating the shooting, serve as a, one summary from a body seeking to weigh all sides. Though it found the behavior of some protesting students at Kent to have been dangerous, reckless, and irresponsible, it also found that firing on them was unnecessary, unwarranted, and inexcusable. Even if the guardsmen thought they faced danger, it was not a danger that called for lethal force. This body concluded that the Kent State tragedy must mark the last time that, as a matter of course, loaded rifles are issued to guardsmen confronting student demonstrators. For me, this tragedy is a sacred story. If it's not too strange to say so, it is a sacred story of sacrilege. It's a sacred story of desecration that reminds us of what it looks like when there's a violation of what our UU first principle calls the inherent worth and dignity of every person. 
It is a story that reverberates with the sacred within each of us, calling us to do everything in our power to prevent such a desolating sacrilege from ever happening again. And I'll share with you just a few brief examples of how this sacred story of sacrilege has powerfully shaped lives connected with our own Unitarian Universalist movement. First, let me tell you about Howard Ruffner. On May 4th, 1970, Howard Ruffner was a sophomore broadcast journalism major at Kent State. Show you another slide. I don't know when, uh, he's the one that took that famous photograph that appeared on the cover of Life magazine that in turn inspired the song Ohio by Neil Young. Uh, Ruffner also took four of the photos that appeared on the inside of that issue. On that cover photo, the name of the injured student is John Clearly. Thanks to the first aid of those students surrounding him who didn't run, who took care of him, he did survive. Today, he is 68 years old. Uh, Cleary is living outside of uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I don't know when uh, photographer Howard Ruffner became a UU, but he's been part of a number of UU congregations over the years. He's married to Lark Mattis Ruffner, who serves as Minister of Religious Education at Jefferson Unitarian Church in Golden, Colorado. She graduated about 20 years ago from Meadville Lombard Theological School, where our intern minister, Jen, is currently a seminarian. If you're interested in learning more, last year Ruffner released a book um, with more of his photos that had never been before seen, as well as some commentary. It's titled Moments of Truth, A Photographer's Experience of Kent State, 1970. Uh, a second person whose life was deeply shaped by that day is the Reverend Barbara Child, who retired as a UU minister in 2010. 50 years ago, Barbara Child was an English professor at Kent State. She ran, she was there that day, she ran from the gunfire. She, this you know, fairly petite, um, non-threatening woman was marched off with a bayonet at her back. Looking back, she reflected that the massacre that day and its aftermath have more to do with who I am today than anything else in my entire life. Indeed, she has said that I am a minister today because I was there that day. Third is the Reverend Bill Schultz. On May 4th, 1970, Bill was a theology major at Oberlin College. He was working part-time as a student minister at the UU Church in Kent, Ohio. His involvement with the aftermath of the shootings catalyzed what will become a lifelong commitment to human rights, as you can see from the title of his books. After serving eventually as president of the Unitarian Universalist Association from 85 to 93, his commitment to human rights led him to become executive director of Amnesty International for um, a little over a decade. And in a final job before retirement, he was president of our UU service committee. I suspect many more of you have stories of the ways that Kent State or other sacred stories of sacrilege have shaped or continue to shape your life or the lives of people that you know. Indeed, uh, Reverend Mike Morris, a member of our own congregation, has given me permission to share that at the time of the Kent State shootings, he was a campus minister at Oberlin College, again, about an hour away from Kent. 
his experience of offering pastoral care as well as physical space at Oberlin for Kent students in the aftermath of the shooting deeply shaped his lifelong commitment to social justice. And Micah said he'd be glad to share further about that with any of you who are interested. We're also approaching the 50th anniversary of a less well-known tragedy. A mere 11 days after Kent in Mississippi at Jackson State College, now Jackson State University, police fired for 28 seconds, 150 rounds at all, more than twice what was fired at Kent. Many of these shots were fired into the women's dormitory where six co-eds were hit. Five African-American men were wounded. Worst of all, two more young people were killed. It is so hard to hear such stories, but we need to tell them from time to time, especially on significant anniversaries, both to honor the memory of all those killed and impacted, and because we need such stories to shape us, to embolden us when we're on the precipice of do I act or do I not act. We need such stories to embolden us to act in any way we can to prevent such desecrations from being repeated. Indeed, scholars of nonviolent activist movements studying how nonviolent movements have played out historically tell us that the turning point in overthrowing dictators and authoritarian governments has often been the precise moment when the police or the military are given the order to shoot unarmed protesters and their conscience stops them from following the order. It matters which stories we hold sacred. It matters which stories we choose to tell and when. Along those lines, though, I want to also invite us to begin to shift from this sacred story of sacrilege in the past to a story of sacred imagination of, of a future world we might be part of building. As the saying goes, for many people, it seems easier to imagine the end of the world than an end to capitalism, at least the hyper-capitalism as we've come to know it. We can see this truth playing out every day, and Jen and um, Nicole and Hope talked about this some in the story. We can see this truth playing out every day with leaders desperate to return to so-called normal life due to an inability or an unwillingness to imagine a better way. One guide I've found helpful in recent years for helping me imagine how we might build the world we dream about is the French economist Thomas Piketty. Let's um, go to another set of slides about him. Piketty first came to my attention through his 2013 bestseller, Capital in the 21st Century. We use, we have some pretty big goals. Our sixth principle is the goal of world community with peace, liberty, and justice for all. And one of my biggest takeaways from Piketty's book is that if we want to get serious about some of those big goals, we need serious structural change to get there. It's not just about what any of us do individually. One of the major tools that Piketty suggests along these lines is the need for a global wealth tax. Now, seven years after his first major book, you'll see he looks a little bit older. Piketty has recently published another huge doorstop of a book titled Capital and Ideology. So why does he keep working so hard? He's convinced that the way things are is not the way they have to be. 
and he wants to make sure we have the data for both the problem and the potential solutions. He wants to help us as a species to live into a more hopeful future. He wants us to get better at telling the story of why our current global wealth gap is both inhumane, unsustainable, and unnecessary for, future, for living into a future with hope. I don't want to overwhelm you with numbers, but let me show you just a few charts. Some of you will love these nerdy numbers and some of you won't. There's just about five of them or so. In this first one, notice how little the bottom 50% have. The first is in 1913, the next two are closer to our own time in Europe and the US. But in all of them, notice how little of wealth the bottom 50% of society and how hugely uh, more the top 10% have. Switching from wealth, what one is amassed to income, um, you can notice on this next slide, uh, Notice in particular the green line, which is the U.S., and notice the divergence between um, the top 10% at the top has gone up and the bottom 50% has gone down. Along with that, what's happened, the reason the top 10% has gone up is they keep taking more and more. So the bottom 50% is going down, and that's why the top 1% can go up. Here's a related slide about annual income instead of. Um, accumulated wealth that shows, um, sorry, in this next slide is about the, uh, in recent decades, you can see the change in inequality around the world um, has continued to play out, not just in the US, but in India, in Russia, in China, and in Europe. All right, one more nerdy chart after this one. Uh, there's actually was a relatively uh, egalitarian phase um, between 1950 and 1980. You'll, you'll notice there's a correlation between when we had more egalitarianism and when we had a higher top income tax rate for the wealthiest among us. But wealth inequality has been increasing for the past three decades. What changed? Simply put, we lowered taxes on the wealthiest among us, allowing an increasingly large amount of money to just pool there at the top, far more money than anyone could ever spend. Note that in this final um, nerdy chart, we have moved from uh, toward everyone paying closer to the same tax rate, even as some among us have vastly more and others not enough. We're all basically paying the same amount in taxes, whereas we have had previous periods that were much more equal and fair when the distribution of the um, top paying more and the bottom having less and the top still having plenty. Many of you have seen this chart before. I uh, should add that I'm not saying that we should try to reach a world of complete equality. I, I do think that profit motive matters, but I do think it's vastly too disproportionate. As you can see, this reality of some people having so many boxes in this super elite top luxurious tier when some people can't even um, have enough to live. So the way I like to think of it ethically is that profit matters. It's still part of the equation, but we have to balance the so-called bottom line of profit alone as if money were the only thing that mattered with what has been called the triple bottom line. People matter, the planet matters, and profit matters. 
Along these lines, Piketty defines a just society as one that allows all its members, members access to the widest possible range of fundamental goods. So, you know, once everyone has a simple, decent place to live and clean water and, you know, whatever is needed for a dignified life, then we can begin to have more. If you really want to dig into the details, Piketty's book um, weighs in at about a thousand pages. So, all the details are there if you want them. But for our purposes of imagining how we might build a better world, I'm gonna share with you just a few highlights. And I'll start with an intentionally provocative question. Should billionaires exist in a just society? We currently have a dominant story in our society that a billionaire represents a story of success. But what if we flipped the script and considered if a billionaire represents our failure as a society to curb exorbitant wealth at, when there is currently people with not enough? I've spoken before about the need for a stable floor for all, a point beneath which we don't let anyone sink. Likewise, I invite you to consider if a just society also should have a ceiling past which there is a 100% tax rate so that a few individuals do not become so disproportionately wealthy that they can unduly interfere with the democratic process. I don't know precisely where such a ceiling should be set, but I invite you to consider if it should be somewhere south of a billion dollars. To say more about what I mean, it's worth taking a few moments to reflect on just how large a billion is. Imagine that a magical genie granted you a wish to receive $1 per second. Does that seem like a pretty good deal? Magical genie, $1 per second. It would take you 11.4 days to become a billionaire at the rate of $1 per second. But even at the rate of $1 per second, it would take you 32 years to become a billionaire. That's how much bigger a billion is than a million. Or suppose a rich relative died and left you either $1 million or $1 billion, and you decide to celebrate by spending $1,000 a day. Do, do you think you could live on $1,000 a day? Uh, it would take you less than three years to spend a $1 million at the rate of $1,000 per day. In contrast with the case of a $1 billion, it would take you more than 2,700 years to blow your inheritance, even spending $1,000 a day. That's how much bigger a billion is than a million. If we had more time, I could give you related examples on an even greater order of magnitude about why it really matters that some mega corporations have passed not the billion dollar, but the trillion dollar level, including Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, and Alphabet, Google's parent company. And we need to trust bust some of those, but that's a separate sermon. Uh, but the billion dollar level matters as well. There are slightly less than 1,500 billionaires in the world. And that super tiny group of individuals among the almost 8 billion people on Earth, uh, that super tiny group of 1,500 people and their families control about 2% of world wealth. That is not good for the common good. Piketty suggests that a solution to this problem might be a progressive wealth tax. Instead of the hugely unpopular tax uh, at the end of your life, the estate tax, sometimes called the death tax of 20 or 30 percent, a much easier and more popular approach might be a 1 to 2 percent tax, not on income, but on wealth, and, but stretching it out over a period of decades for those individuals and corporations that have 
uh, amassed a certain level of wealth. Beyond funding the social goals of universal health care, universal access to quality education through college or vocational training, a minimum basic income, again, that stable floor for all, Piketty has crunched the numbers that a properly instituted set of taxes could further fund a universal capital endowment given to each young adult at, say, 25, which would open up new possibilities, such as pur purchasing a home or starting a business, what the wealthy already do for their children. As I move toward my conclusion, I should underscore that what is most important is not whether any of us agree with one or more of Piketty's specific, specific suggestions. Rather, my hope has been to open our sacred imagination, to dream more vividly about what a world might look like with peace, liberty, and justice, not merely for some, but for all, and to dream more vividly about how we could get there specifically. The stories we choose to tell matter, from sacred stories of sacrilege in the past, like Kent State, that we hold in our hearts as a reminder to act whenever we can to prevent such desecrations from happening again, to stories of sacred imagination about a better future for us all. The headlines that we are watching play out each day in the news around so many workers who are apparently both essential as well as underpaid and under-resourced, that is a reminder that the way things are is neither just, nor fair, nor sustainable for most humans and for this planet. We must demand better for ourselves, for this earth, and for generations to come. As we hold all of this in our hearts and reflect on the influence that each of us might have within our spheres of influence for helping build the world we dream about, Let's sing together our hymn of response, Building a New Way. <laughs>